And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We are pleased to be joined by Chip Brown, who's from Horns Digest and also 1300 The Zone in Austin, knows all things Texas and the Big 12. And Chip, another yet another interesting week um, around the Texas football program. For those of us on the outside, it feels like things turned on Charlie Strong like overnight, very quickly. Obviously, two losses, not great defensive performances. But why do you think the Heat has cranked up so quickly four games into the season? Well, I think there are a few factors going on uh, here. And first and foremost was not that they lost to Cal, but the way they lost in terms of 18 plays of 11 yards or longer given up by a defense that looked like it was in a prevent defense uh, the entire game in a, in a secondary that was just lost. I mean, big plays given up and lack of communication and just looked poorly coached. Uh, a game Texas led by 10 three different times and just, you know, that's Charlie's side of the ball, the defense. The offense is putting up points, put up 50 against Notre Dame, you know, put up uh, 43 against Cal. Um, but, you know, there's the defense, uh, you know, falling apart and, and going backwards, regressing. And, and I think that that's the, the fear and the, you know, the driving um, question among the, the forces of change, we'll call them, the, you know, the big money boosters who tend to get involved when the, the football coach at Texas is, um, you know, the status is in question, is that there were, there's progress and then there's a backslide. Um, last year, beat Oklahoma, beat Kansas State, and then backslide, shut out at Iowa State, a team that fired its coach. And then, you know, this year, beat Notre Dame, look good against UTEP and then backslide look like you don't, you know, look like you're not getting coached on defense. And so then Charlie steps in, says, I'm going to, I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to get more involved. And the de- the defense gives up 19 plays of 10 yards or longer, uh, including six passes of 33 yards or longer in the loss to Oklahoma state. And then three, extra point attempts blocked. And that is actually four on the season because if you'll remember, they had the extra point attempt against Notre Dame, which would have given them a three-point lead um, in the final minutes of the game. They had it blocked in return for two points, which tied the game and sent it into overtime. So, you know, these are the concerns from from the forces of change in Texas that, that there's not 
enough progress. There's not enough improvement from week to week. You know, obviously he said at the beginning of the year, no excuses. We got the talent. We just got to coach him up and, and go win games. And, you know, he's, he desperately needs to do that starting Saturday. Now, having said all that, Chip, I, I'll ask you this. You know, it's been reported that he's very close to being fired and, won't, you know, this will be it for him. Hypothetically, if they beat Oklahoma, they're our tribal, and then they beat Iowa State, do you think this is a backburner issue again, or is it just a foregone conclusion? Let, so let's say he gets to nine wins and goes nine and three. you think he would still keep his job? I do. I mean, I think the president of the university, Greg Fenves, um, wants to be fair to Charlie and wants Charlie to have the season. And, and so I, you know, I'm, I think there's an uneasy truce uh, between the president's office and the big money forces of change uh, about, you know, what number needs to be hit in terms of wins to make it a successful season. Is it eight regular season wins? Is it, um, is it, is it eight with a bowl win? Because I, I do think that the president, Greg Fenvis wants to, to give Charlie the season to, you know, prove that he can get it turned around. And I think the big money guys feel like, well, Charlie's not going to get it turned around because he's not organized enough. He's, he's not good enough on game day. There's always the backslide. So it's, you know, where LSU, it seems, fired less at the first opportunity before he could figure it out and possibly get it turned around. I think Texas is going to give Charlie the season to try to get it figured out. Chip, is it my imagination or, and I'm not excusing the way they're performing right now, you know, this is definitely not a sign of a, a program that has is, is heading in the right direction, though, like Bruce said, I, I think there's still plenty of time to turn it around this season. It seems to me, though, you know, based on some of these anonymous quotes you see and people saying they don't have any faith in him, and, and this, I don't know, is it just me, or is there a certain contingent of Texas fans, or maybe just the big money boosters, that it feels like have been rooting against him almost from day one? Well, I think there's going to be that perception because of what Red McComb said on the record. He was very frustrated with Steve Patterson, the athletic director, because Steve Patterson took input from the big money guys at the beginning of the coaching search. And then he never talked to them again. And it did not matter how many times they called Patterson. He didn't call them back. A lot of them got mad. Red McCombs became public about his support for John Gruden. So when Charlie Strong was hired, Red McCombs, billionaire, um, said, you know, Charlie would make a good position coach, maybe a coordinator. And the sense was, okay, there's the rich white guy who is talking down to, you know, Charlie Strong. And I think some, you know, took that there were racial overtones to that as well, even though Red McCombs has been a professional sports team owner, whatever. And so I think there has been support from the president's office. And Greg Sanders knows that Charlie did not come into great circumstances with Steve Patterson. I think that there has been excitement over the recruiting. And I think there's been excitement that Charlie's a defensive-minded coach in a very offensive-minded conference. 
that that could be the edge, the advantage, because let's be honest, you know, Bob Stoops and Gary Patterson have been successful in the Big 12. I think what drives Texas fans and, and boosters crazy is they can take a loss. They cannot take embarrassment. It, it's that the old axiom, I say in Texas, the coach is in trouble when the big money guys go to their golf game on Sunday and their buddies from rival schools are making fun of them and jokes about their team's ineptitude. And so when they go to Cal, a team that they're favored to beat, and look like they're not coached on defense, the, the heat intensifies. Chip, let me ask you a quick follow-up. You mentioned a couple times now the Cal game and how poorly they performed in that. How different, though, if at all, would the, would the reaction have been? It's one thing for fans to panic. It's another one that feels like the coach is panicking. If he had come out that Monday morning after, and instead of throwing Vance Bedford under the bus and basically you know, telegraphing that he was going to eventually demote him, if he had just come out and said something like, you know, we've performed poorly, but I got a lot of faith in my coaches and these guys are young and we're going to get it turned around, would the ensuing panic maybe have been a little bit less? Yes. Yes. Because when Charlie said, I'm going to get more involved, I'm going to fix it, it's the problem is going to get fixed, and then they go out against Oklahoma State, who's a very, very competent offense. I mean, Mason Rudolph, 10 starters back on offense, James Washington at Stillwater. That's a, that was a game I had circled at the beginning of the year as a loss. So for Charlie to say, I'm going to get it fixed, and then basically have a week to try and soothe the ego of Vance Bedford or whatever he needed to do there and get this defense, um, you know, playing in a 3-4 with some new guys in new positions, that, that, was, that was too much. That was too much to bite off in a week. And so you're right, Stuart. He probably would have been better off saying, hey, we're going to get it fixed. I got faith in my coaches. And then if it doesn't happen, then you say, okay, I'm in. I'm going to come in. I'm going to fix it. And, and so now – the patience is, is paper thin. Everyone's asking if they get blown out by OU, is Charlie going to get fired? Well, I think the president is going to stand tall on this. And in terms of Charlie strong, getting the season to try to turn it around, but yeah, you know, politically LSU firing less miles sort of upped the anxiety among you know, the Charlie Strong critics um, in the big money crowd. All right, finally, Chip, we want to ask you about a subject near and dear to your heart, I'm sure, and that is Big 12 realignment, if it's happening. Um, we hear a new thing every couple weeks. David Boren wants expansion. David Boren doesn't want an expansion. The conference is going to go to 14. It's going to stay put. Um, I guess I'm curious where you're leaning these days based on what you're hearing, and in particular, we hear all about Oklahoma and David Boren. Where does Texas stand on it? Yeah, and I think that I think Greg Sendis, the president of Texas, deserves some credit for just remaining quiet, yeah. listening, uh, <laughs> keeping his mouth <laughs> shut. Kind of, well, and he's had some pressure put on him. I mean, the governor of the of the state and the lieutenant governor 
the two most powerful people in Texas politics, are both from Houston and would love to see the University of Houston in the Big 12 and basically express that. Um, and I think Greg Fenves behind the scenes has, you know, told the rest of the Big 12, hey, I'm, I'm not going to twist arms here. You know, I'm going to go with the will of the, of the conference, which is a different, you know, uh, vantage point than what Texas has had in the past. When Bill Powers was the president, it was very much a, we're Texas, we're doing this, and everybody's going to like it. And Greg Simmons took a completely different approach and basically, you know, was listening to the, to the conference. And so I, I do not think there's going to be expansion because I think at the end of the day, there's not consensus. Now, um, I think there's a part, uh, I think there was a thought at the beginning that, hey, if we start to go down this road, maybe the TV partners will pay us not to expand, um, you know, without having to go through the actual act of adding two schools for the quick cash grab of, you know, I mean, basically there's eight years until the, basically all the tier one television deals and the power five come up and, you know, could you phase someone in and, and it, it'd be like a six year cash grab, you know, but it's, it's a marriage. So you're stuck with these, you know, whoever you add. And I just don't think there's consensus. I mean, Houston makes the most sense because it's a, it's a proven program. They've won for a decade. They've, they're investing in their school as a research institution and as a athletic program. Um, and I think there was some talk maybe to the eight schools, not named Texas and OU. Hey, maybe you all should vote together because what if Texas and or OU leave the conference wouldn't it be smart to have a Houston in the league so that the league could survive? I just don't think that any, anyone's in that mindset right now. I don't think Oklahoma State's in a, in a spot where they're going to vote separate from OU, you know, where Tech and, and TCU are going to vote separate from Texas. I think there's just too much um, – there's just not consensus. So I think we – I think we've spent the last three months talking about something that's not going to happen. That, that does increasingly feel like it's the case. And so you're hearing it from the man who basically predicted the original, um, how the original big 12, I guess, non-expansion or non-moving to the PAC 12 ended up going down. Um, he says they're not expanding. So I'm, I'm done covering it as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Well, and what's interesting is Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner, I think wants expansion. So you never know. I mean, October 17th is the date that the board will all get together, the presidents and chancellors. And, and it is presidents and chancellors, not athletic directors making this call. But right. I get the sense that it's not going to happen. All right, Chip. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, as always, you can follow Chip and check out his work on Horns Digest. Uh, it's always a pleasure having you, Chip. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, Stu. Always interesting stuff from Chip Brown. And now it's time for your favorite segment. Hit it, Rob. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. All right, Stu, I'm going to start with this. It's from Brian Banks. I assume it's not the Brian Banks, but uh, from Austin, Texas. 
keeping up with our theme. Hey, Bruce and Stewart, I love the podcast. Thanks for filling my weekdays with some more college football. As a TCU fan, I'm beginning to worry that Gary Patterson sacrificed his defense when he brought in Meacham and Cumbie to fix the offense. TCU's D looks completely broken down this year and honestly hasn't been the same since the offense switched to a more up-tempo, aggressive approach. It looks like Charlie Strong is having similar problems at Texas this year. What are your thoughts? Coincidentally, this was part of my answer to the lead of the mailbag this week, the print mailbag, uh, where somebody asked, why do you think the Big 12 is in decline? I'm starting to think that's the case. And we've talked about this before. You don't see these teams that run the air raid don't generally have good defenses. And there's some uh, feeling that, you know, when your team, when your defense practices against that every day, um, they, they forget how to tackle. <laughs> Basically, they get soft. They... There's any number of theories, and so we've seen that. I mean, most of this conference at this point is running some either the Baylor-style offense or the air raid offense, and almost none of them have a good defense. Oklahoma, I thought, did pretty well defensively last year. Now they've taken a step back. And so I think this might be the, um, the, the you know, if you were doing a scientific experiment, TCU and Texas are definitely interesting windows into this because those are two proven defensive coaches they have produced great defenses everywhere they've been in the past and their defense has only gotten worse since they've installed these offenses so i think brian has a point yeah i would agree i mean look texas for a while and when i say a while i mean like the 2009 10 11 they had very good defense uh i mean you almost have to go back to nebraska when Indomik and sue would go there in that conference and obviously they're not in the conference anymore um, I do think a couple of years ago, I think it was the first year, uh, Meacham and Cumbie were there. They did have a very good defense. They did, the year they almost made the playoff. So, you know, look, I go back to Leach's probably best defensive coordinator was Ruffin McNeil towards the end. And they were respectable at the, you know, one particular year, I remember. Um, but usually it's a lot of shootouts, and that's kind of, it's like live by the sword, die by the sword. I'm going to ask you this next one because I think you're going to get fired up about the, the thing at the end. It's from Patrick Bacher, B-A-E-T-J-E-R, however you pronounce that. Bruce and Stu, really dig the show. Listen to you guys on my way into work in Rome, Italy. How awesome is that? Uh, he is, And then he says, interested in y'all's take on Blake Barnett transferring out from Alabama when he is one play away if Hurts got dinged up. Seemed like a really odd time to transfer four games into the season. I think we know how you all feel about players transferring in general, but what is... Your, y'all's take on the seeming inevitable transfer of a QB if he does not win the job. And also, he says to you, Bruce, Derek Barnett over Miles Garrett in the Heisman voting? Come on. Let me start with that first. Yeah, I knew you were going to be fired up about that. Yeah, I, I love Miles. I love both players. I think they're great players. I think Miles Garrett will get more attention because he is the freakier athlete. Uh, he, he will light it up in Indy at the Combine. I assume he's coming out this year. And, you know, he's, a, he's an unreal athlete, and that's why. Uh, and he's a really good player, too. Now, he didn't play last week. But Derek Barnett, who is not going to test quite as well but is a total effort guy, I'm sorry, his production is ridiculous what he has done. These are both the same year guy. They're both about – Miles Garrett's a little taller, but they're both about – Six four ish two seventy two sixty five. So I'm going to read to you what what Derek Barnett's done in eighteen career SEC games: thirty two and a half tackles for losses, twenty one sacks. Miles Garrett's not even close to that. 
Now, you could say, okay, Miles Garrett's drawn some different uh, blocking schemes and maybe has been held more. But Derek Barnett is also the leader of the Tennessee team. They would have lost the last two games, no question, if Derek Barnett was not there. Um, he's on my Heisman list. It's not a fluke. Here's the uh, exact comparison, courtesy of Chris Lowe, responding to a tweet of yours. Derek Barnett has played 18 SEC games in his career. He has 32.5 tackles for loss and 21 sacks. Miles Garrett, 17 SEC games in his career, 18 tackles for loss and 11 sacks. Again, I don't think that means he's not a good player. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, Jadavian Clowney was extremely disruptive in a year where he didn't have that many sacks. Um, but I think if you're talking Heisman, as you have it, you got to go with the guy with more production. Not only that, I'm talking about the guy who is as good a leader as there is in college football right now. I mean, the accountability he demands from his teammates. I mean, I've talked to the coaches, you know, for a while inside that program. Derek Barnett is the man there. So okay. Thanks, Co- Thanks Coach down. Shoop. <laughs> I'm not backing down on that. Hey, they're talking – you know, I'm not going dis- to – I'm not going to dismiss the information from guys who know it better than we do. Well, and, and by the way, the two of them go head-to-head this week. And I have to think if Barnett keeps doing the kind of stuff he's been doing against – two consecutive top 10 teams more you're not going to be alone in the Derek Barnett Heisman bandwagon what about Blake Barnett all right so you know I think this was something that had been in Blake Barnett's mind from after the opener against USC and I think we have to wait until we hear more from Blake Barnett and his family about exactly what his rationale was on the timing uh but look, and I think you you agree with me on this. When it comes to, to players transferring, and quarterback is different from other positions. You can play multiple running backs. You can play multiple everything else. But you're pretty much, it's either the quarterback or not. And the fact is, if he had stayed for the rest of the year, it means he would have had to sit out a full year next year. And it is ultimately, it's a, I hate to say it just like this, but it's a, a business decision as much as anything else. And... You know what? There's coaches who leave for better jobs. I mean, Nick Saban left the Miami Dolphins, you know, early on his time. Did he leave it in midseason? No. But I'll tell you what, anybody who is calling uh, Blake Barnett a, a quitter or anything need to just direct that same stuff to C- Steve Spurrier last year. Ouch. He, no, because the head coach is the one preaching all this yeah. stuff. I didn't like Saban's comments because, like you said, he has – he. He has he technically he has never as far as I know never quit in the middle of a season but he has certainly moved from job to job and I would say that if if he if it what if it didn't make a difference if he was leaving after four games and he was going to sit out next season anyway then sure why then then it would come off as you know that he's being kind of a uh, uh, bitter you know for oh I'm not getting the job here Jalen Hurts is the guy I'm just not even going to play the rest of the season he is taking advantage of a rule. Actually, I would put it this way: He is trying his best to mitigate a, a, what's a pretty um, restrictive rule, where you have to sit out an entire season. And yeah, so coaches it, don't have to sit out another year if they right. switch jobs. So if he can do this maneuver, where he apparently he hasn't announced anything yet, but if reports say he's going to go to a JUCO to finish out the academic year and then transfer to an FBS school, where he would have to sit out the first four games of next year, but then he could play. Um, you know, I can't blame him for doing that because, like you said, the alternative is he maybe Jalen Hurts gets hurt and he comes in. But clearly, Saban has made it clear that Jalen Hurts is the guy going forward. So he was probably, if he wants to play, he's probably going to have to transfer at some point, And this way, he maximizes his uh, playing time. 
All right. This is from Donnie Green in Chicago. Stu and Bruce, love the podcast. Stuart, I've been a longtime reader, probably since the beginning of the mailbag, back in the SI days. I'm feeling very old now. Me too. Anyway, here is my question. Are we giving Ohio State too much credit? Yeah, they looked impressive. Yes, they have Urban Meyer and a slew of blue-chip recruits. But thus far, the best defense they've faced in terms of total D is Tulsa. Tulsa, Stu, what gives? You know, he, I think that would be a valid point, if not for the fact that they've also been extremely dominant on the other side of the ball. And uh, and Oklahoma, you know, may have a crappy defense, but they're, so they've still got all those guys on offense. Um, you know, I saw Bill Connolly, our, our friend at SB Nation, had a story this week, you know, looking at the statistical uh, elements and showing that Ohio State to this point has had really no weaknesses. Now, yes, it, it is dangerous to jump too far ahead um, when they haven't played some of the tougher uh, tests on their schedule. And so in terms of the offense, in terms of JT Barrett, Curtis Samuel, uh, Mike Weber, and so on down the line, I think they are going to be tested here pretty soon. Um, maybe not this week against Indiana, although they did uh, uh, beat Michigan State, but they're going at Wisconsin on the 15th, and Wisconsin, we've seen, has a great defense. Uh, Michigan only scored 14 in that game, so, you know, if they run all over those guys, then then watch out, um, but, you know, I think back-to-back road games at Wisconsin and at Penn State should give you a good read on them, and then the defense, I, I, I don't I don't think they're going to suddenly turn around and give up 35 points to somebody anytime soon. I think that defense is so fast across the board. Um, so many big-time playmakers, especially in the secondary. And I think the Shiano effect has been real. Yeah, I would agree. Hey, Bruce, let me throw you something out for you real quick about Ohio State. Uh, I saw um, Cleveland.com wrote about this. You know, we both have JT Barrett number two on our Heisman list. But... Are we missing out on possibly the uh, better Heisman candidate? It should Curtis Samuel, who they're saying is shaping up to possibly be the Christian McCaffrey of the East, should he actually be Ohio State's Heisman candidate since he is doing it on both rushing and receiving? It's still early, Stu. I don't want to go uh, you know too too overboard on this. Matt Brown from Sports on Earth. Curtis Samuel is the only player since 2000 to start the year with 300 plus rush and 300 plus receiving in his first four games. You really would put him that high up right now? No. We talked about last week. There's a bit of a drop-off after Jackson, and I think that that'll start to play itself out. I mean, if that's the case, Stu, I, I would I would be tempted to put Jeremy McNichols in there. What about uh, John Ross? No. Uh, Jeremy <laughs> McNichol, and I look, I saw him play a pretty shitty uh, Oregon State team, but he ran all over them. But great receiver out of the backfield. You know, averages like 125 yards rushing a game, has 10 touchdowns in four games. I mean, if we're if we're looking for, you know, do it all running back receiver types, I would take uh, him over Curtis Samuel, who's one of many weapons. I mean, he's a terrific player and he's explosive and everything. But I mean, you know, Curtis Samuel, one watch Mike Weber is going to probably, you know, have 150, 200 yards in the next game they play or something. Yeah. Let's see how it plays out. I mean, if he becomes their their absolute go-to playmaker and does it in big games against high profile teams, like he did Oklahoma, then yeah, maybe that sentiment starts to build. But like you said, I mean, he's only averaging 17 touches a game. This isn't Christian McCaffrey. Christian McCaffrey was 
basically the Stanford offense. You can't really say that about it. I mean, Curtis Samuel is a dynamic player, and I feel like I don't want to be crapping on him. Yeah, it feels like you're you're you you think I just told you that um you know that I I don't know that I think like some average running back in the MAC should be the uh should be a Heisman candidate. Well, it's just I mean, look, I mean he's averaging eight yards a carry, but they have a running back on his team who's averaging almost seven and a half and has. 125 rushing yards per game right all right jim shylander bruce and stewart enjoy the pod when many second and third tier big 10 jobs come open many of those teams go the way of the hot mac coach and recently that strategy has not been so successful with tim beckman and daryl hazel while other hot mac coaches such as dino babers and matt campbell were hired by schools in other power five leagues with western michigan ranked in at least one poll it does seem like P.J. Fleck will probably be moving on to bigger things. While I doubt he would sign up for Purdue, is there another Big Ten job that you think could keep Fleck in the Midwest? And also, what do you think of Jeff Brom or Mario Cristobal for Purdue? I think Jeff Brom can do better than Purdue as his next step. I think he's a, you know, within, within the coaching business, Jeff Brom is a very hot name. So I think he would, I don't think Purdue would be his next stop. Would Mario Cristobal listen to Purdue? Yeah, I think he would. Um, you know, I, I thought Mario Cristobal's a name to keep in mind. I don't know if he would sit and wait to go, oh, well, you know, let me see what would happen if you look at, a, you know, Temple possibly because Matt Rule could get a bigger job. Temple could come open. You know, I don't know. We'll see. I think Steve Adazio is safe for this year, but that's a, you know, a coach who I think needs to get it going at BC, which is a pretty good job. So, I mean, I, I, in line with thinking Cristobal Moore would be a guy who would end up at a Northeast program if he's not in, in the Deep South. But In terms of P.J. Fleck, I feel like his profile is growing, and we'll see how they finish the season here, but his profile is growing to the point where I, I think he's going to aim for something better than Purdue or Minnesota or the, you know, the kind of jobs he's talking about. Um, like where do you think he, what do you think he could top out at from, from Western Michigan? Well, we talked at the last podcast, we don't think this job's necessarily going to come open, but what about Oregon? Yeah, I think that would be a big move to hire because he's still pretty young. But he's got the whole row the boat thing going, and, you know, he's, he's it's a little, I'm not saying, I'm not going to go there quite, but it's a little Tom Herman-esque, the, the image that he's building. I got one for you. Um, if, and this is a big if because he has a big buyout, and we'll see how it plays out, but if Mark Stoops doesn't, you know, get another year. I could see Kentucky looking to go offense there. And I could see him coming in and, and really uh, energizing that place. You know who he crosses swords with a little bit, this being P.J. Fleck, I think? Some of the same jobs I could see P.J. Fleck being in the mix for are some of the same jobs I could see Lane Kiffin being in the mix for. If Kentucky made a change, I could wouldn't shock me if Kentucky would look really hard at Lane Kiffin. Gotcha. Dear Stuart and Bruce, thanks for the fair and thoughtful coverage of the less miles firing in the last podcast. Your colleague, Mr. Klatt, seems adamant that Notre Dame is an elite job and better than LSU. Thoughts, Jeff Trailer, Baton Rouge. P.S. One of the highlights of the podcast for me is hearing Bruce drop a well-timed F-bomb. Bravo, sir. I don't think I agree with that. I, I'm thinking about it because I think it's in the same realm. I was actually asked in the mailbag... To rank seven different high-profile jobs that could be coming open. And I so had, what are they? Give me, let me hear them because I haven't had a chance to read your mailbag yet. I went with number one, Texas, number two, USC, number three, LSU, number four, Auburn. This may surprise people that that is then ahead of number five, Notre Dame, number six, Penn State, 
and number seven, Oregon. I don't agree with Joel. I think if you're trying to win a national championship and your choices are Notre Dame and LSU, based on recent history, you go to LSU. Yeah, I'd lean, I'd agree with you. I don't know if I would have Auburn ahead of Notre Dame. They've also won a national title much more recently. Yeah, they did. And played for another. Well, so well, Notre Dame also played yeah. for a title too, but we've talked about it. I just think Notre Dame is just set up for somebody to do exactly what's happening with Brian Kelly. If you can catch some breaks, you might have that one great year. But the schedule is so brutal, not just in terms of the um, quality of the teams, but the travel. You know, the it's the travel schedule and the expectations around. It. I, I, I really think it's. The issue of getting good players into Notre Dame, I think, has been somewhat overblown, just having seen transcripts of some of the players that they also recruit. What I don't think is overblown is Notre Dame will not let players get away with the same stuff that maybe some other schools will let them still play with. And that takes your margin for error away. And I just think some of the burden and burden, that sounds wrong to say like that, but some of the academic uh, expectations placed upon Notre Dame football is it's different. Like I would say this, and I don't want to name the school I would usually use for this, but certain schools are committed to playing football at the highest level. And that is a kind of a, almost a euphemism to say there's certain things that they'll be lenient on. I don't think, sorry, Notre Dame, and this is actually a compliment in a weird way, but I don't think Notre Dame is quite at the same level of commitment to playing football at the highest level at this point. And that makes the head coach's job a little harder. Right. I got one for you. This is from Trey Pierce from Richardson, Texas. I know where that is. That's right next to Dallas. You mentioned that Clemson was a bucket list stadium to cross off this weekend, but that it was hard getting there and back because there was no close airports. I assume that this is true of many major college programs. What is the toughest stadium, arena, location you've ever been to? And what is the toughest stadium you routinely have to get to? And finally, what is the easiest stadium that you routinely go to? You know, I got to say that Penn State, there's no good way to get to Penn State. To me, that was always... that drive sucks. Even when I lived in New York, uh, which you would think would be a pretty easy trip. No, that drive, I remember coming back from a game and there was traffic all down the highway. And a four-hour trip took like seven hours. Um, Virginia Tech is a tough place to get to. You know, you it's almost like two flights into Roanoke. I mean, it's a really pretty drive if you do it not not in the middle of the night. What about a place I'm sure you've been to several times now, Pullman? Yeah, Pullman's not easy. I'll tell you what's hard for me, and it'd be hard for you considering we're on the West Coast. And I do this for for sideline now. West Virginia is a pain in the ass to get to because you know I end up flying L.A. to Atlanta, Atlanta to Pittsburgh. And then it's basically an hour and 45-minute drive in. I mean, two flights and a long drive is not, is not easy. In terms of easiest, and remember, you know, let's try to do this without taking into consideration where we live, right? Because most of the Pac-12 is very easy for us. Not when I lived in New York. When I lived in New York, I thought getting to Oregon was the biggest pain in the butt, um, flying all the way to Portland and then driving two hours. Uh, and now that's I consider it easy. Um, but I would say, okay, so we said you can't do bowl games. Anyone that's in a major city, you know, like if you were covering a Cincinnati game, you could fly to the airport and be there in 15 minutes, um, into a major airport. Ever been to Lubbock, Stu, by the way? Oh, that was, that was actually the longest trip I've ever taken to go to a game. 
Um, but it was worth it because it was the Crabtree. It turned out to be the Crabtree game against Texas. Let's see. Let me try to recount that one. Flew from New York to uh, DFW, then caught a cab over to Love Field. Uh, these were some restrictions then that aren't there anymore about where you can fly within the state or whatever. Flew from there to Amarillo, and then drove from Amarillo to Lubbock because there were no flights available into Lubbock. What's the most random you know stadium you've ever been to for work? What do you mean by random? Just like there wasn't a big game there for some reason. Either you were doing a story, you got a sign there, or you just... The week of the, 10 years ago now, the big Ohio State-Michigan 1 versus 2 game that we spent, you know, months building up. You could tell from late September that that was going to happen. The week before it, instead of going out and covering whatever the big game was that week, Luke Wynn and I, Luke was still covering college football then, split it up where we went to Ohio State-Michigan's games the week before that, which meant that I went to a Michigan-Indiana game in Bloomington. That's not even that random, though, because, you know, it's, like, still a Big Ten game. You want, like, a uh, group of five school? No, look, I I think this is... I mean, I went to Nevada, but that was a big game, Nevada-Boise. Yeah, I once went, and this is near where you live, I once went to a San Jose State game because one of their players, Neil Perry, had this really amazing story. You know, he was going to play again, um, and I don't even remember who they played. You know, San Jose State's not hard to get to, certainly for either one of us, definitely not for you. Oh, my gosh. You could fly into the San Jose airport and be there in two minutes. Yeah, but just it was a random place, you know, to go to. I've done that more for basketball. I've been to some pretty small gyms for basketball. Uh, St. Bonaventure, St. Joe's. I'm just realizing there's a lot of saints here. St. Mary's. I can Uh, top all of those. I went to – I worked on a story about a sketchy – high school prep basketball program, Mount Zion. It was Tracy McGrady's old mm-hmm. school. And I went to see the former coach who was, who was the head coach at Shaw, which was uh, – it's a small school in North Carolina. And the crowd was like one layer deep around the court. And mm-hmm. at one point I got asked if I was refereeing the game. And I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but it was just – and they, they had a great player. Was, um, I'm trying to remember what Mur- – Ronald Murray, who ended up playing in the NBA. But – it was, uh, yeah, it's the smallest place I've ever seen a game in college by far. Okay, finally, you remember last week somebody wrote in and pointed out that there are eight guys in Auburn with the name Davis, and we asked people to see if they could find somebody that had more. Uh, and nobody could, but Keith from SoonerStats.com, who has this amazing database of Oklahoma players, found one, two, three, four, five, six different seasons where they had five guys with the same name. And as you predicted, three of them, the name is Johnson. Uh, one of them was Jones. And in as recently as 2011, there were five Williams playing for Oklahoma. So it does seem like, based on that, that this is a pretty high bar Auburn has reached. As always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Tell 10 of your friends. Tell them to tell 10 of their friends. Leave a five-star review on iTunes, and for emails, you send those to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.